0: Part 2 of Book 1, Chapter 10 of These Twain by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 2 of Book 1, Chapter 10, 4. Janet came softly and timidly into the drawing room. They're gone? she questioned. I thought I heard the front door. Yes, thank goodness. Hilda exclaimed candidly, disdaining the convention, which Edwin still had in respect, that a weakness in family ties should never be referred to, beyond the confines of the family, save in urbane terms of dignity and regret, excusing so far as possible the sinner. But in this instance, the immense ineptitude of the Benbows had so affected Edwin, that, while objecting to his wife's outbreak, he could not help giving a guffaw which supported it. And all the time he kept thinking to himself, Imagine that damned piteistic rascal dragging the miserable shrimp up here to apologise to George. He was ashamed, not merely of his relatives, but somehow of all humanity. He could scarcely look even a chair in the face. The Bembos had left behind them desolation, and this desolation affected everything and could be tasted on the tongue. Janet, of course, instantly noticed it, and felt that she ought not to witness the shaming of her friends. Moreover, her existence now was chiefly an apology for itself. She said, I really think I ought to go back and see about a meal for Johnny in case he turns up. Nonsense, said Hilda sharply. With three servants in the house, I suppose Johnny won't starve. Now just sit down. Sit down! Her tone softened. My dear, you're worse than a child. Tell Edwin." She put a cushion behind Janet in the easy chair and the gesture made Janet's eyes humid once more. Edwin had the exciting, disquieting, vitalizing sensation of being shut up in an atmosphere of women. Not two women, but two thousand seemed to hem him in with their incalculable impulses, standards, inspirations. Janet wants to consult you, Hilda added, and even Hilda appeared to regard him as a strong saviour. He thought, After all, then, I'm not the born idiot she'd like to make out. Now we're getting at her real opinion of me. It's only about father's estate, said Janet. Why, hasn't he made a will? Oh, yes, he made a will over thirty years ago. He left everything to mother and made her sole executor, or whatever you call it. Just like him, wasn't it? Do you know that he and mother never had a quarrel, nor anything near a quarrel? Well, Edwin, nodding appreciatively, answered with an informed masculine air. The law provides for all that. Tom will know. Did your mother make a will? No, dear thing, she would never have dreamt of it. Then letters of administration will have to be taken out, said Edwin. Janet began afresh. Father was talking of making a new will two or three months ago. He mentioned it to Tom. He said he should like you to be one of the executors. He said he would sooner have you for an executor than anybody. An intense satisfaction permeated Edwin. "'that he should have been desired as an executor "'by such an important man as Osmond Orgreave, "'He felt as though he were receiving compensation "'for uncounted detractions. "'Really?' said he. "'I expect Tom will take out letters of administration, "'or Tom and Johnny together. "'They'll make better executors than I should.' "'It doesn't seem to make much difference "'who looks after it and who doesn't,' "'Hilda sharply interrupted, "'when there's nothing to look after.' "'Nothing to look after?' He had been repeated. Nothing to look after, said Hilda in a firm and clear tone, according to what Janet says. But surely there must be something, Janet answered mildly. I'm afraid there isn't much. It was Hilda who told the tale. The freehold of Lane End House belonged to the estate, but there were first and second mortgages on it, and had been for years. Debts had always beleaguered the Orgreave family. A year ago money had apparently been fairly plentiful, but a great deal had been spent on refurnishing. Jimmy had had money in connection with his sinister marriage, Charlie had had money in connection with his practice, and Tom had enticed Mr. Orgreave into the palace porcelain company. Mr. Orgreave had given a guarantee to the bank for an overdraft in exchange for debentures and shares in that company. The debentures were worthless, and therefore the shares also, The bank had already given notice under the guarantee. There was an insurance policy, one poor little insurance policy for a thousand pounds, whose capital well invested might produce an income of 12 or 15 shillings a week. But even that policy was lodged as security for an overdraft on one of Osmond's several private banking accounts. There were many debts, small to middling. The value of the Orgreave architectural connection was excessively dubious. So much of it had depended upon Osmond Orgreave himself. The estate might prove barely solvent. On the other hand, it might prove insolvent. So Johnny, who had had it from Tom, had told Janet that day, and Janet had told Hilda. Your father was let in for the Palace Porcelain Company, Abram breathed with incredulous emphasis on the initial P's. What on earth was Tom thinking of? That's what Johnny wants to know, said Janet. Johnny was very angry. They've had some words about it. Except for the matter of the Palace Porcelain Company, Edwin was not surprised at the revelations, though he tried to be. The more closely he examined his attitude for years past to the Orgreave household structure, the more clearly he had to admit that a suspicion of secret financial rottenness had never long been absent from his mind, not even at the period of renewed profuseness a year or two ago, when furniture dealers, painters and paper hangers had been enriched. His resentment against the deceased, charming Osmond, and also against the affectionate and blandly confident mother, was keen and cold. They had existed, morally, on Janet for many years, monopolised her, absorbed her, aged her, worn her out, done everything but finish her, and they had made no provision for her survival. In addition to being useless, she was defenceless, helpless, penniless, and old. And she shivered now that the warmth of her parents' affection was withdrawn by death. You see, said Janet, father was so transparently honest and generous. Edwin said nothing to this sincere outburst. Have you got any money at all, Hilt Janet? asked Hilda. There's a little household money, and by a miracle I never spent the ten pound note poor Dad gave me on my last birthday. Well, said Edwin, sardonically imagining that £10 note as a sole defence for Janet against the world. Of course Johnny will have to allow you something out of the business, for one thing. I'm sure he will if he can, Janet agreed, but he says it's going to be rather tight. He wants us to clear out of the house at once. Take my advice and don't do it, said Edwin. Until the house is let or sold, it may as well be occupied by you as stand empty. Better, in fact, because you'll look after it. "'That's right enough, anyway,' said Hilda, as if to imply that, by a marvellous exception, a man had for once in a while said something sensible. "'You needn't use all the house,' Abin proceeded. "'You won't want all the servants.' "'I wish you'd say a word to Johnny,' breathed Janet. "'I'll say a word to Johnny, all right,' Abin answered loudly. "'But it seems to me it's Tom that wants talking to. "'I can't imagine what he was doing to let your father in for that palace porcelain business.' "'It beats me!' Janet quietly protested. "'I feel sure he thought it was all right.' "'Oh, of course,' said Hilda bitterly. "'Of course they always do think it's all right. "'And here's my husband just going into one of those big dangerous affairs, "'and he thinks it's all right, "'and nothing I can say will stop him from going into it. "'And he'll keep on thinking it's all right until it's all wrong "'and we're ruined and perhaps be left a widow with George.' Her lowered eyes blazed at the carpet.' Janet, troubled, glanced from one to the other, and then, with all the tremendous unconscious persuasive force of her victimhood and her mourning, murmured gently to Edwin, Oh, don't run any risks, don't run any risks. Edwin was staggered by the swift turn of the conversation. Two thousand women hemmed him in more closely than ever. He could do nothing against them, except exercise an obstinacy which might be esteemed as merely brutal. They were not accessible to argument, Hilda especially. Argument would be received as an outrage. It would be impossible to convince Hilda that she had taken a mean and disgraceful advantage of him, and that he had every right to resent her behaviour. She was righteousness and injuredness personified. She partook in that moment of the victimhood of Janet, and she baffled him. He bit his lower lip. All that's not the business before the meeting, he said, as lightly as he could. Do you think if I stepped down now I should catch Johnny at the office? And all the time, while his heart hardened against Hilda, he kept thinking, Suppose I did come to smash. Janet had put a fear in his mind. Janet, who in her wistfulness and her desolating ruin, seemed to be like only a little pile of dust. All that remained of the magnificent social structure of a united and numerous Orgreave family. Five. Edwin met Tertius Inkpen in the centre of the town outside the offices of All and Sons, amid the commotion caused by the return of uplifted spectators from a football match, in which the team, curiously known to the sporting world as Bursley Moorthorne, had scored a broken leg and two goals to nil. Hello, Inkpen greeted him. I was thinking of looking at your place tonight. Do, said Edwin. Come up with me now. Can't. Why do these ghastly louts try to walk over you as if they didn't see you? And in another tone, very quietly and nodding in the direction of the Yorgi's offices. Been in there? What a week, eh? How are things? Bad, they had been answered. In a word, bad. Ingpen lifted his eyebrows. They turned away out of the crowd up towards the tranquillity of the Turnhill Road. They were manifestly glad to see each other. Edwin had had a satisfactory interview with Johnny Orgreave, satisfactory in the sense that Johnny had admitted the wisdom of all that Edwin said, and promised to act on it. "'I've just been talking to young Johnny for his own good,' said Edwin. And in a moment, with eagerness, with that strange, deep satisfaction felt by the carrier of disastrous tidings, he told Ingpen all that he knew of the plight of Janet Orgreave. "'If you ask me,' said he, "'I think it's infamous.' "'Infamous!' Ingpen repeated the word savagely. "'There's no word for it. What shall do?' "'Well, I suppose she'll have to live with Johnny.' "'And where will Mrs. Chris come in, then?' Ingpen asked in a murmur. "'Mrs. Chris, Hampson?' exclaimed Edwin, startled. "'Oh, is that affair still on the carpet? Cheerful outlook!' "'Ingpen pulled his beard. "'Anyhow,' said he, "'Johnny's the most reliable of the crew. "'Charlie's the most agreeable, but Johnny's the most reliable.' i wouldn't like to count much on tom and as for jimmy well of course i always look on johnny as a kid can't help it there's no law against that so long as you don't go and blub it out to mrs chris ingpen laughed i don't know her you ought to know her she's an education my boy i've been having a fair amount of education lately said Obin. only this afternoon i was practically told that i ought to give up the idea of my new works because it has risks and the palace porcelain co. was risky, and Janet hasn't a cent. See the point? He was obliged to talk about the affair because it was heavily on his mind. A week earlier he persuaded himself that the success of a marriage depended chiefly on the tone employed to each other by the contracting parties. But in the disturbing scene of the afternoon, his tone had come near perfection, and yet marriage presented itself as even more stupendously difficult than ever. Ingpen's answering words salved and strengthened him. The sensation of being comprehended was delicious. Intimacy progressed. "'I say,' said Edwin as they parted, "'you'd better not know anything about all this when you come tonight.' "'Right you are, my boy.' Their friendship seemed once more to be suddenly and surprisingly intensified. When Edwin returned, Janet had vanished again. Like an animal which fears the hunt and whose shyness nothing can cure, she had fled to cover at the first chance. According to Hilda, she had run home because it had occurred to her that she must go through her mother's wardrobe and chest of drawers without a moment's delay. Abram's account to his wife of the interview with Johnny Orgreave was given on a note justifiably triumphant. In brief, he had talked sense to Johnny, and Johnny had been convicted and convinced. Hilda listened with respectful propriety. Edwin said nothing as to his encounter with Tertius Ingpen, partly from prudence and partly from timidity. When Ingpen arrived at the house much earlier than he might have been expected to arrive, Edwin was upstairs, and on descending he found his wife and his friend chatting in low and intimate voices close together in the drawing-room. The gas had been lighted. "'Here's Mr. Ingpen,' said Hilda, announcing a surprise. How do, Ingpen? How do, Ed? Ingpen did not rise, nor did they shake hands. But in the five towns, friends who have reached a certain degree of intimacy proudly omit the ceremony of handshaking when they meet. It was therefore impossible for Hilda to divine that Edwin and Tertius had previously met that day, and apparently Ingpen had not divulged the fact. Edwin felt like a plotter. The conversation, of course, never went far away from the subject of the Orgreaves, and Janet in particular. Ingpens' indignation at the negligence which had left Janet in the lurch was more than warm enough to satisfy Hilda, whose grievance against the wicked carelessness of heads of families in general seemed to be approaching expression again. At length, she said, "'It's enough to make every woman think seriously where she'd be if anything happened.' Ingpen smiled teasingly. "'Now you're getting personal.' "'And what if I am?' with my headstrong husband going in for all sorts of schemes?" Hilda's voice was extraordinarily clear and defiant. Edwin nervously rose. "'I'll just get some cigarettes,' he mumbled. Hilda and Ingpen scarcely gave him any attention. Already they were exciting themselves. Although he knew that the supply of cigarettes was in the dining-room, he toured half the house before going there, and then lit the gas and with strange deliberation drew the blinds. Next, he rang for the bell for matches, and having obtained them, lit a cigarette. When he re-entered the drawing-room, Ingpen was saying with terrific conviction, "'You're quite wrong, as I've told you before. "'It's your instinct that's wrong, not your head. "'Women will do anything to satisfy their instincts, "'simply anything. "'They'll ruin your life in order to satisfy their instincts. "'Yes, even when they know jolly well their instincts are wrong.' Edwin thought. Well, if these two mean to have a row, it's no affair of mine. But Hilda, seemingly overfaced, used a very moderate tone to retort, You're very outspoken. Tertius Ingpen answered firmly, I'm only saying aloud what every man thinks. Mind every man. And how comes it that you know so much about women? I'll tell you sometime, said Ingpen shortly, and then smiled again. Edwin, advancing, murmured, Here, have a cigarette. A few moments later, Ingpen was sketching out a Beethoven symphony unaided on the piano, and holding his head back to keep the cigarette smoke out of his eyes. 6. When the hour struck for which Hilda had promised a sandwich supper, Edwin and Tertius Ingpen were alone in the drawing-room, and Ingpen was again at the piano, apparently absorbed in harmonic inventions of his own. No further word had been said upon the subject of the discussion between Ingpen and Hilda. On the whole, despite the reserve of Hilda's demeanour, Edwin considered that marriage at the moment was fairly successful, and the stream of existence running in his favour. At five minutes after the hour, restless, he got up and said, I'd better be seeing what's happened to that supper. Ingpen nodded as in a dream. Edwin glanced into the dining-room. the complete supper was waiting in illuminated silence and solitude then he went to the boudoir there the two candlesticks from the mantelpiece had been put side by side on the desk and the candles lit the figures of Hilda and her son Hilda kneeling held a stamped and addressed letter in her hand the boy was bent over the desk at his drawing which his mother regarded Edwin in his heart affectionately derided them for employing candles When the gas would have been so much more effective. He thought that the use of candles was just like one of Hilda's unforeseeable caprices. But in spite of his secret derision, he was strangely affected by the group, as revealed by the wavering candle-flames in the general darkness of the room. He seldom saw Hilda and George together. Neither of them was very expansive, and certainly he had never seen Hilda kneeling by her son's side since a night at the Orgreaves before her marriage, when George lay in bed unconscious, and his spirit hesitated between earth and heaven. He knew that Hilda's love for George had in it something of the savage, but, lacking demonstrations of it, he had been apt to forget its importance in the phenomena of their united existence. Kneeling by her son, Hilda had the look of a girl, and the ingenuousness of her posture touched Edwin. The idea shot through his brain like a star that life was a marvellous thing. As the door had been ajar, they scarcely heard him come in. George turned first, and then Ada was standing at the door. "'Yes, m? "'Oh, Ada, just run across with this letter to the pillar, will you?' "'Yes, am you "'You've missed the post, you know,' said Edwin. Hilda got up slowly. "'It doesn't matter. Only I want it to be in the post.' As she gave the letter to Ada, she speculated idly as to the address of the letter and why she wanted it to be in the post. Anyhow, it was characteristic of her to want the thing to be in the post. She would delay writing a letter for days, and then, having written it, be on pins until it was safely taken out of the house. And even when the messenger returned, she would ask, Did you put that letter in the post? Ada had gone. What's he drawing, this kid? asked Edwin genially. Nobody answered. Standing between his wife and the boy, he looked at the paper. The first thing he noticed was some lettering, achieved in an imitation of architect's lettering. Plan for proposed new printing works to be erected by Edwin Clayhanger Esquire upon land at Shawport. George Edwin Clayhanger, architect. And on the other parts of the paper, ground floor plan and elevation The plan at a distance resembled the work of a real architect. Only when closely examined did it reveal itself as a piece of boyish mimicry. The elevation was not finished. It was upon this that, with intervals caused by the necessity of escaping from bores, George had been labouring all day. And here was exposed the secret and the result of his chumminess with Johnny Orgreave. Yet the boy had never said a word to Edwin in explanation of that chumminess nor had Johnny himself. "'He's been telling me he's going to be an architect,' said Hilda. "'Is this plan a copy of Johnny's, or is it his own scheme?' asked Edwin. "'Oh, his own?' Hilda answered, with a rapidity and an earnestness which disclosed all her concealed pride in the boy. Edwin was thrilled. He pored over the plan, making remarks and putting queries in a dull matter-of-fact tone but he was so thrilled that he scarcely knew what he was saying or understood the replies to his questions. It seemed to him wondrous, miraculous, overwhelming, that his own disappointed ambition to be an architect should have re-flowered in his wife's child who was not his child. He was reconciled to being a printer, and indeed rather liked being a printer, but now all his career presented itself to him as a martyrization, and he passionately swore That such a martyrisation should not happen to George. George's ambition should be nourished and forwarded as no boyish ambition had ever been nourished and forwarded before. For a moment he had a genuine conviction that George must be a genius. Hilda, behind the back of proud silent George, pulled Edwin's face to hers and kissed it and as she kissed she gazed at Edwin and her eyes seemed to be saying, have your works I've yielded. Perhaps it is George's plan that has made me yield, but anyhow, I am strong enough to yield, and my strength remains. And Edwin thought, this woman is unique. What other women could have done that in just that way? And in their embrace, intensifying and complicating its significance, were mingled the sensations of their passion, his triumph, her surrender, the mysterious boy's promise. And their grief for Janet's tragedy. Old Ingpen's waiting for his supper, you know," said Edwin tenderly. George, you must show that to Mister Ingpen. End of part two of book one, chapter ten.